All right, if you want to turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21 and 22, that's where we'll be this morning. As we go through Numbers, we get all these little stories that you wouldn't get um, in any other place. Some of them are repeated in other locations in the Bible, and many times in the New Testament they're referred to. So uh, when you're reading the New Testament, if you're a New Testament-only person, you wouldn't know what they're talking about. You wouldn't understand it. And so it's good that we're going through these things. The nation of Israel is marching their way towards uh, the Jordan River to make their crossing into the Promised Land, as God had said uh, He was going to do for them. Um, it's been 38 to 39 years now, and uh, they're, they're, they're going to finally get across here. Now, they're going to run into some controversy on this side of the Jordan here. Um, they're going to run into a few uh, enemies, and that's what we're going to read about today, some of the things that they come up against. It says, the king of Arad, the uh, Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Athiram. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, uh, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Now that's their first battle. And I don't want to make more of it than it is, but sometimes it takes someone to actually, uh, spiritually speaking, in America, we got it pretty easy. I think we'd all agree on that compared to the rest of the world and the rest of the Christians that have to live under um, terrible circumstances. Um, and so we can be at times apathetic and uh, not really see the, uh, the, the enemy very often every day. Maybe personally you'll see the enemy at work. You know, that one person shows up and they always give you that funny look or whatever. And that's about as bad as it gets. Sometimes God will bring some adversity into our lives, though. So the world will come right up against our faith, come right up against our walk with Jesus, and we get wounded by it. We get a little damaged by it. We cry out to God. God's just looking for someone who's willing to take a stand for Him in this world. Uh, sometimes it takes that provocation to get us moving in His direction, and that's what happens with the nation of Israel. They come up against some enemies, some people that didn't like the idea that they were moving into their turf, Um, God is evicting these people and moving in his new group. He gave them 400 years to repent, and they didn't, these Canaanites. Um, And now he's moving them in, and they come up against them, and they lose. uh, They get some people captured, so they cry out to God. God says, uh, he hears their vow, and their vow was this. If you let us win, we'll make sure that your enemies, God, are completely wiped out. And God likes that. He says, okay, if you're going to fight, and you're going to fight for righteousness, and uh, you're, going to, you're going to move in my direction, then yes, I'll be with you. And uh, sometimes that's what it takes for us to be a little bit wounded, for us to move in the direction God wants us to move in, and then um, to be on his team. Um, he is always wanting us there on his side. He wants us moving. He wants us to be sight and light, salt and light into this world. Um, um, sometimes we forget what we're there for. Um, we get caught up in our own uh, problems, uh, our own uh, dramatic life, uh, and, and we forget that we're ambassadors, as we learned on Wednesday night. We forget that we're called um, to simply represent God to this, to this world until he takes us home. And uh, this is some of the things that God does to remind us. You know, I, I'm still looking for people to be a warrior for me down here, you know, to stand up for righteousness, to stand up for, um, for what, what, what's going to be best for everybody. And so they do. Verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Remember, they couldn't go through Edom. Edom won't let them cross through. 
And the soul of the, of the people became very discouraged on the way. It is. It's difficult when you know you've got to go the long way around. Um, I remember our trip down to, oh, where were we? I think we were going to the Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, Museum down in south Missouri there. And uh, um, we, we decided to uh, just go right there, and we had a detour. Uh, a bridge was out. And, and, and when bridges go out down there, it's a long way. We, they took us through the, the, the forest down there, the Mark Twain Forest. I don't know if you've ever been through the Mark Twain Forest. First of all, I've got kids that get car sick anyway, and that road is just anything but straight. And so by the time we're done, it took us maybe two and a half hours to go what should have taken us 15 minutes through this Mark Twain Forest, and all the kids are going, oh, yeah, the pretty trees. You know, I'm tired of looking outside, Mom. Uh, take your mind off of it. Look outside. They're... It got weary. We show up at the museum, and it's like, oh, you know, not the way we'd hoped to show up. I understand what they're going through in a, in a very minor way, obviously. It's, it's just like these guys. That trip was just like these guys. These guys had to go the long way, and so they get discouraged. Now, I'm not justifying it. Their discouragement comes out sideways. Um, it's, it's one thing to be frustrated with the situation. It's another thing to blame it on God, you know. Um, it, it wasn't the road crew's fault. It, the bridge was out. What are they supposed to do? Well, you could try to jump it. You know, of course there's a detour. It's just the way it is. But to take it out on God is the wrong thing. And here's what the people did. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's offensive. This worthless bread was what God had provided for them to sustain them, something that they needed when they were there. And it was always there, and they never had to work for it. They just had to go out and pick it up every morning. It was the manna that we're talking about here. And they loathe it. Of course, um, spiritually speaking, we have God's Word. It's the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, and it speaks to us, and it's available for us. None of us here have to work for the Bible. It's always sitting on our coffee table. It's somewhere in our house. We may have maybe 10 Bibles in your home someplace and scattered throughout. It's always available. But oftentimes it's the last book we pick up to read. There's other things that are more interesting to us, other things more like leeks and onions, like the nation of Israel missed out of Egypt. The things of the world that tantalized us and got our, uh, got our flesh going, so to speak. And this worthless bread, this Bible, oftentimes becomes what's left in collecting dust. And we can't figure out why we don't grow or why we're not... Uh, becoming more spiritually nourished when we're actually just feeding our flesh day in and day out. And so, although they shouldn't be saying this, oftentimes we say it without words in our own walk with Jesus. Um, we won't actually go up to God and say, I hate this Bible. We'll tell everybody we love it, but we haven't, can't remember the last time we read it. You know, um, Of course, you have it open. I'm preaching to the choir here, but um, that's the case. It's offensive to God. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. That seems extreme, but it's not. He's, he's sensing in them, and Moses is sensing in them, the same spirit, the same um, difficulties they had with the previous generation. Uh, they're starting to um, exhibit the same um, habits of blaming God for their frustrating situations. God never promised that the wilderness was going to be a great place. The promised land is. The place where they're heading to is, but the road there isn't. It's difficult. There's a lot of trusting in God. There's a lot of um, self-sacrifice. There's a lot on the way there. Um, and then when you get there, yeah, it's going to be great. But for now, yeah, I'm going to have to give you this water that comes out of the rock. I'm going to have to give you this bread. It's not worthless. It's very valuable. 
And they begin to complain. So God moves them in the back into the direction of Him. Um, they're walking away from Him. The only place to go away from God is into the arms of a little g God. You will have a God. You will worship something. They will worship something. God knows this. It's built into us to worship. And so if we're not worshiping the true and living God, we will worship something, and God knows that is, that is death. This is frustration. This is struggle. But this fall into the hands of a little g is death, spiritual death. And he knows that. And so he does what he needs to do to bring them back to him. Therefore, because of these fiery serpents, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And they know it's wrong. They didn't need snakes to tell them that. They needed snakes to move them to repentance. But they knew it was wrong. They know right what to do. The snakes show up and aren't speaking to them. You shouldn't have spoken against God and Moses. You shouldn't know. They're just doing it. And they, they know exactly why this is happening. And so they immediately come to God. And that's, a, that's, a, that's what people do when they get into trials and tribulations and struggles. They know exactly where to go. They know where the help is. They know who loves them. They know who's got the answers. And that's where they show up in those down times, in those low times in their lives. They come out and cry out to God. Now, when times get better, they move away from God because, well, they don't need Him at that point. They're They're good. When God is not looking into that kind of relationship, it's not what he wants from us. He wants a consistent one, day in and day out, walking with him. Nobody wants that boyfriend or girlfriend that only shows up when things are bad and they call you when they're crying kind of thing. You know? No, I want a marriage. I want to go through things with you. I want to support you and care for you and walk with you. I want to share the good times and I want to be there for the bad times. I want to be there for all of it. You know? I love you. I don't, I don't love your problems. I love you, and I want to be with you. And that's God's heart towards us. So they know. They know. We have sinned. We've spoken against you. Please take away and pray that the serpents would leave us. So Moses prayed for the people, and that's what he's supposed to do. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone... When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And that was God's antidote, to take a wooden pole, to place this bronze serpent on top of it, to lift it up into the center of the camp, or even walk around with it. We're not sure how this happened. And anybody that looked at it got healed. And so it wasn't an instantaneous death. It was a process that would take place from the serpent's bite. Opportunity was given for them to be healed. Later on in Scripture, in John 3.14, um, Jesus describes himself as that serpent. I'm the serpent that's going to be lifted up. And anybody that looks on me, they're going to be healed, is the idea. You brought the serpents on yourself, and they've bitten you, and you're reaping the benefits of that bite. And it's slowly but surely killing you, and that's what sin does. But I'll become sin for you, and you'll place me on the cross, and I will be high and lifted up, and I will draw all men to myself, he says. So it's symbolic, this... Uh, this pole and this serpent is symbolic of what the Savior is going to do for the nation of Israel. They don't know his name at the time, but we do. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, much later on, this is after they get into the promised land, conquer, go through all the judges, actually have the kings set up and so on. King Hezekiah has to come through and get rid of all the idols in the nation, in the land. Um, there were all sorts of idols that had come into this a group of people who said they were going to worship God their whole lives. So as we fast forward into the future and we see this, one of the idols that 
uh, King Hezekiah has to knock down is, is this idol here, this, this pole, and this bronze serpent becomes something of worship to them. And some would say, well, that's, that's not too bad. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it's at least from God. Um, it, it, God did use it at one point. Um, Moses had it in his hand. I can see where that would be valuable. But something had happened in their mind. It was no longer a symbol or a, 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 something that had happened to them, a, a memory, you know. It had become the thing that did it. They honored the pole. They honored the snake, forgetting the God who had the plan. And we can do that if we're not careful. We can move from a personal relationship with God to where we become so distant, all we have are these things that we remember God did, and they become the God that we worship. He's not moving in my life today, but he did back then, and that thing, remember that thing. Calvary Chapel has a problem with that. Well, we don't have a problem, but people back in the 60s when they first came to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, where it started, where God began to move with the hippies, it was in a gigantic tent. And that tent became a symbol of what God did back then. But that was something he did back then. You know, there's over 1,200 Calvary Chapels worldwide now. God's still moving. He's still alive and active in these churches. But some of the people that went back then haven't been to church since. And when they show up at Calvary Chapels now or any church, I was at the big tent, they said. That's their claim to fame. I was at the big tent. You know? That's, that's, that can't be an idol in your life. That needs to go. That needs to be removed. What? What church are you serving at now? What are you a part of now? What's God doing in your life today? What's this personal relationship with? What do you speak to in your quiet time this morning? This morning? Oh, I haven't read my Bible in years. Years, but I was at the big tent. It becomes a pole. It becomes a brass serpent. And that can happen to any of us. God wants us to have a personal relationship. Anytime you see that rise up in your life or anybody's life, things, relics, Something that uh, becomes untouchable because the item itself has become holy. Not the, not the God who used it at one point, but the item itself becomes holy. That's a telltale sign that the relationship with Jesus or with God is no longer personal. But it's religious. It's something that they go to. It's something that they do. The rituals they go through. Because the personal has gone and they, they need to replicate that the best they can. So as great as this bronze serpent is and this pole to represent Christ dying on the cross uh, for us, uh, you know, eventually, that's what this is pointing to. Um, he wants us to love Jesus, uh, not the things, you know, not the events themselves, but the person. I love uh, going to see new things. I like, I like traveling. Um, I like to see places and things, but I've, I've been with my family at times, and I've been by myself at times. Um, I remember when I took Seth out to California and I had to stay out there for a couple days after I dropped him off to get some things lined up and in order at the college. I was kind of by myself and he was doing his thing. And so I went to the beach because that's, you know, every time I get to California, I've got to go see the ocean. It's just kind of a something you do. And you go there and you're standing there looking at it and you think, okay, I'm bored now. I mean, it's awesome and beautiful, but my wife's not standing beside me. My kids aren't running away from the, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean they're, now I worship God, of course, and I thank Him for it, how beautiful it is, and how big it is, and it is. It is. It's something about being around big things, whether that's mountains or oceans or anything. I like that, you know, things that are bigger than you. But when the people aren't there, 
It doesn't mean much. Now, when they're there, oh man, I thoroughly enjoy it. That's the idea. I love the fact that God lifts up this brass serpent and heals all these people who have cried out to him. I love Jesus. I love the cross. I love the tomb. But without a personal relationship with Jesus, they don't mean much to me. Christmas doesn't mean much. Easter doesn't mean much. None of these things mean much without him, obviously. Verse 10. Now the children of Israel moved on and camped at, uh, in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and camped at... Um, it's actually a heap of Abiram is what it means. It's easier to pronounce heap. Heaps of Abiram. Uh, in the wilderness, which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise. So they're just giving us a narrative of where they traveled and where they camped as they were moving towards the promised land. From there they moved and camped uh, in the valley of Zered. From there they moved and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites for the, uh, Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites, therefore it is said, and I'm not going to read this, this is from the Book of Wars. We don't have that book. Um, we don't know where that is, and it um, doesn't really matter. We, anything we need, anytime the Bible mentions a book that we don't have, it quotes it, right? And so my take on that, and you can throw this out or not, is then I have everything out of that book I need. I wish we had the Book of Wars. No, we've got everything God wanted us to have out of the Book of Wars. It's right here. And everything else in the Book of Wars really isn't necessary. So that's how I look at it. And so he reads off this, this proverb uh, and describes exactly what he just said twice. Um, now, verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. This is the same spiel they gave Edom. Um, we will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Okay, so promises that two million people are going to go through your country. We're not going to eat and drink you dry. Fair enough. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Uh, then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword, and took possessions of his land from the uh, Arnon to the Jabbok. As far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all these cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab. So if you beat Sion, you beat Moab, basically. And had taken all his land from his hand as far as uh, the Arnon. Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say and says exactly what he just said again. So I'm skipping. Verse 31. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Moses sent to spy out Jazir. And they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. So they're moving and they're conquering as they go through. And they turned and went up by way of Bashan. So Og... That's a great name. King of Bashan went out against them, and he and all his people to battle at uh, Edri. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons and all his people, until there was no survivor left in him, and they took possession of his land. Some people take exception to that. Um, and there's a long explanation for that. I'm not going to give you a long one. I'm going to give you a spiritual one since that's what we're here for. 
Um, but when God wants you to conquer an enemy in your life, he doesn't want you making friends with it. There's no room for the enemy to have a tiny little corner of your heart. There's no room for that enemy to have a little foothold in your life at all. When God says, I want you to eradicate this from your life because it's detrimental, we're not supposed to look for its positive attributes. We're supposed to completely and utterly wipe it out. We think at times that there's going to be this great loss. Oh my goodness. You know, what am I going to do without that? And, and how will I fill that void? Believe me, God will fill that void. He'll fill that void with what should be there to begin with. And so, despite the actual physical um, thing we see taking place here, the spiritual implication is that when you come across sin in your life, absolutely annihilate it. Completely remove it from your life. Don't give it any room. Because it will grow. It's like one of those dandelions when you don't get the weed, when you don't get the root, you know. And you just break off the top. I guarantee you it's going to be back in a week, if not sooner, you know. You've got to get the root. And that's the idea here. These people, these nations that are being evicted have been nothing for 400 years but produce people for hell, produce people to hate God, produce people to come against good and to promote evil and to uh, propagate evil. And what he's doing here is absolutely wiping out this cancer that's eating up the world. Um, Verse uh, 1, chapter 22. Then the children of Israel, this is a story of Balak and Balaam. Uh, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of uh, the Jordan across from Jericho. So they're just about to go in. They're all camped. They're all two million of them. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at the time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, at Pethor, which is near the river of the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, so he's going to get this guy, he's hiring this guy to come and pronounce a curse upon the nation of Israel. They're going to kill us. Look at them all. Everywhere they go. And they're going to just destroy us. And they are. But this is a concern to them. So we need to do something about this. Um, Go get Balaam. And say this to him, look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. This puts a whole new spin on that co-worker who says, will you pray for me, kind of thing. I don't have a relationship with the God you serve, but I know that you do. You know, Would you mind cursing my boss for me so he gives me a raise or something? I don't know how to make this work, but that's what his hope is. I know that, I know that you have the power, and this is, this is always the world's mistake, I know that you have the power to either curse or bless. That's how they see it. They know that whatever you ask God is going to do, he's going to do. They think of him like a genie. If you rub that lamp and he gives you the three wishes, I want you to do one of these wishes for me. Of course, they're they're wrong. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, 
All right, lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. So they give him the spiel. They give him their little token of money. Here's your $1,000 finder's fee, you know, or whatever. I, I want you to come curse. Well, let me pray about it and see if God will let me do this. Stay here. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? That's the kind of relationship Balaam has with God. He comes to him and starts talking to him, okay? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. Very straightforward. I think Balaam understands that God just wants the truth. No flowery words. This is what they've asked me to do, God. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. In other words, I blessed them, so don't go. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, probably with the money in his hand, <laughs> giving it back to them, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Now that should have been their first red flag. I asked God and he said, no, here's your money back. Guys for hire don't turn money down unless it's serious, you know. But they don't listen. I mean, they do. They go back. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak, and Balak uh, said, and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. This is what they told uh, their boss. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, because they thought that was the problem. We haven't given enough honor, enough glory. We haven't given this man enough pomp and circumstance. We haven't given him, you know, that puffing. You know, you just got to see, you know, there's a way to talk to people here, guys. So send, send the big guys in with more money. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come and curse this people for me. In other words, I've got a blank check waiting for you back here, buddy. Now, for a guy who lives off of this, he's a diviner, that's got to be tempting. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, in other words, that wouldn't be a bad idea, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. What more is the Lord going to say to him? Balaam? He's already said no. Now, I make that funny face when I talk about Balaam. Balaam, I'm this guy. I'm just like him. I can do this to God. God's already said no, and it's in a very plain, normal voice. You know, God's not shaking the earth and thunder over my house. No, you know, it's just very simple. In the quiet time, I'll be reading, and it says, you know, that, that'd be a bad idea. That, that thing you've been praying out's a bad idea. Okay. But I really, really, really want it, God, you know? And so I'll read a little, have a few more quiet times with God. And then you start looking a little bit. Well, this verse seems to indicate that it might be okay. And you start, you know, doing that Bible roulette thing to see if you can make it come about. I'm that guy. Now, so far, well, I don't know if I haven't searched my memories enough, probably. But for now, so far, I haven't made a catastrophic mistake like Balaam's about to make. 
and gone through with it or followed through with it even though God had said no. But I do make him say no sometimes three or four times, unfortunately. So Balaam says, hey guys, spend the night. Let me go ask God if I can't get a full house of silver and a full house of gold because that'd be great. My word's not his. Hey, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. What's God doing here? This is always confusing as you read through this sometimes. Look, we've got free will. You do have free will. I don't want you to go. Yeah, but I really, really want to go. It's a lot of gold. All right, you can go. And when God does this, and I've never seen him do that, but I've got the feeling he's done that to me several times. All right. That's a, that's a red flag to say, you know what? Never mind. I shouldn't have asked that twice. That look on your face tells me everything I need to know about how this is going to go down. But that's what he's doing, basically, to Balaam. You can go, but I don't want you to say anything I'm, I don't tell you to say. You know. Well, you've already been blessed. Balaam should know. He's got this hope that God is going to get mad or that God's going to let him do what this guy wants him to do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. It doesn't seem fair, but it is. I don't want you to go, okay? You can go, but I only want you to say, if you're going to go, if you decide to go, if they come and call on you and you go, you can only say what I want you to say. He should have woke up that morning and said, I'm not going. Find somebody else. Or don't find somebody else because it's not going to work, but I'm not going. He goes. He gets excited. He saddles his donkey, and bright and early in the morning, he's off with them, and God gets mad at him. And the angel of the Lord, by the way, that's Jesus in the Old Testament, took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the, onto the road. So he begins to beat this donkey for not going out. Here's the thing, donkeys seeing better than Balaam. And they do. If I don't want to see God, I don't see him. If I don't want to pay attention to his voice, I'm not going to hear him. If I'm not really listening, if I don't really want an answer, I won't hear or I won't see. That's important to know. When people say, I don't know, I've tried to call on God and I've just never heard him, then either you're lying or God's lying because God says he draws near to everybody who draws near to him. He promises us that. So then God's a liar. Well, I don't know. I've, I've, I've prayed, but I've never heard. So how long did you wait to listen? And did you really want to hear an answer? And were you going to do exactly what he told you to do if he answered you? Or were you only going to hear the answer you wanted to hear? And we can come to God like that sometimes. I will hear the answer I want to hear. I'll go through the formality of asking because that's polite before I go ahead and do what I want to do. And then God will give me the answer that I expect him to give me and that I desire him to give me. And then when he gives me that answer, I'm going to go through and everything will look just great. Instead of honestly coming to God and saying, God, I really don't know what you want me to do in this matter. My heart, and that's how I pray. God, my heart says I really want to go do this. My flesh is really excited about this, but I don't know how you feel about it. I really want to know. And then you wait for God to answer. 
And when my flesh is so excited about something and I hear God out of His Word or whatever speak to me and say no, I know that's Him. I get more worried when I hear that my flesh gets the answer at once. Did I really hear from Him or not? Because that just seems way too easy, you know. I don't mean to be like that with God, but then I always set out a second request after that. I say, okay, I asked, and that's the scripture I came up with. Was that really, really you? You know, or am I being deceived? Because I'm trying to show God my heart. I honestly want to do what you want me to do. And my heart is desperately wicked above all things. And I know I can make myself believe. So I only want to do what you want me to do. And so this donkey sees what Balaam should have seen, but can't. So this, ba- this donkey, who's always been faithful, who's always done what he's told, and always been a really, you know, as far as donkeys go, a really good one. He's going to tell us later on. Goes in the wrong direction. He begins to beat this donkey. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with the wall on this side and the wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, he pushed herself, or she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she, the donkey, said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam, without batting an eye, my words, not God's, said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. doesn't even realize he's talking to a donkey that's talking to him. That's how weird we can get. You think that's weird that a donkey talks? What's weird is that Balaam's talking back and doesn't realize it. Why would I kill a talking donkey? I'm going to make a lot more money off this than I am with Barak. I wish I could kill you. We get so mad sometimes with circumstances and situations that keep blocking my path on my way to glory. Hasn't this always worked before? It has. Why won't my car start this morning? This is weird, stupid car. (laughs) Uh. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. (laughs) Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. Takes the blinders off. Remember who blinds the eyes of the people of this world? Satan. Takes the blinders off of him. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord, of Ho- the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely... I would have killed you by now and let her live. He's just emphasizing the point there. You know, the donkey's got to be just nodding her head going, yeah. You know. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. What? <laughs> that is so amazing to me. I have sinned. What, what was the sin? Hitting the donkey or going against God's will here? 
I shouldn't have hit the donkey, must be what he's thinking. For I did not know you stood in the way against me. Sorry I hit the donkey. Now, if you really, really want me to, I'm going to go back home. This guy is relentless. Of course you're supposed to go back home, Balaam. Of course you're not supposed to come against God's people. Of course. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, because Balaam has free will, go with the men. But only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now that's the same thing he said before and allowed him to go, but then got in the way and stopped him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going on in Balaam's mind on the way there before he runs into the angel of the Lord. But I can infer, I'll be careful here because it doesn't say this in Scripture, but what was going through Balaam's mind? Everybody have that moment where you're going to do something or going to a event or going to a dinner and you're role-playing in your mind how it's going to go down? I'm going to say this, and then they're going to do this. I'm going to do this, and then they're going to they're do that. I'm going to, you know, or whatever. I wonder what he was thinking on his road there. I wonder what changed from God saying, okay, go, but only say what I want you to say to him standing in the passing, you're not going. You're not going to curse these people. Something's happened in Balaam's mind. He's role-playing in his mind. Well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll figure out a way to curse these people, and that way I can still get my money. Something's going on in his mind for God to send the angel of the Lord. And so he gives him another opportunity here. I'm going to let you go, but keep this in mind. You can only say what I want you to say. Now, when Balak... Um, Oh, sorry. so the angel said, go with the men only speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, did I not, uh, did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? I am not able to honor, am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, look, I have come to you. Now I have, now I, now, sure, now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. In other words, my prophecies aren't from my heart. They're from God's heart. So all I can tell you, all I can prophesy, all I can pronounce is what God tells me to pronounce upon these people. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirjath, um, Huzath, and Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. And so it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. Baal is a pagan god that they worship, so they're on Baal's turf. And he's about to pronounce his curse, and we'll pick that up next week when he pronounces his first curse. He doesn't. Spoiler alert. Read chapters 23 and 24 for next week. That's probably what we'll get through next week, so you're prepared. Um, the story continues. It continues. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Lord, uh, some of us were convicted about certain things. Um, your Holy Spirit knows how to use um, its sword to uh, convict and to cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit. You've answered questions that only you knew we had asked you. Um, you've given us direction. Uh, and we thank you for that. And now help us to leave here, not sullen or sad if you've said no to us, but thankful that we have a living God who's going to tell us the truth and give us the best, the best answers. God, help us to take your best answers. Even if there are future questions coming up that we're going to ask you, we honestly want to know what you want. 
We honestly want to be people after your own heart to do things according to your will, not our own will. And so help us to hear you, first of all, to want to hear you, and to, when we do hear you, follow through with what you've said, trusting you completely. You're always looking out for our best interests, and we thank you for that, God. Help us to be obedient kids. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.